0: Hello, my name's Russell Howcroft. I've lived a lot of lives. I've been an ad man, a CEO, a chair, an author, a panellist, and I currently co-host a radio show on 3AW. And I'm partner and chief creative officer at the Sayers Group. And I'm host of this podcast. Welcome to Conversations, a Sayers podcast. Throughout my time, I've learned that so much in life starts with, yep, a good conversation. And that's what we're going to do right here today. Okay, so our guest today on Sayers Conversations is James Aitken from Aitken Advisors. Um, James is an Australian, uh, brought up in the uh, fair town, fairly amazing town of Sydney, Harbour City and all that. Um, found himself uh, in the finance industry, went to the UK. I think uh, James has been there for half his life, maybe even a little more than half his half his life. He has created um, a global impact um with a show which is which is I think James a desk, a lot of reading and um, the ability to email people that matter I mean it's an amazing story. so James, welcome to the Sayers conversation
1: Good morning Russell that's a, I, I wish I could have come up with that introduction. I think I'll get you to write all my copy from now on
0: <laughs> not a problem I mean we we would love to do we would love to be involved with your <laughs> your thriving your thriving business now. Before we get stuck into it, what we like to do, this is yep. Freddie. Freddie's um, in charge of production. G'day. So what we like to do is we just want to get you into a really good conversation space. And the way we do yep. that, given this is an audio medium, yep. is we just play you some audio grabs and we want you to think about, okay, where is the great place to have a great conversation off the back of what you're about to hear. So let's roll.
1: Oh Yes.
0: James, some pretty evocative stuff there. Uh, I I wouldn't mind being at all of them, really. But anyway, which is which is your preferred space to have a you know great in depth
1: chat? Well, I I was hoping you'd play a snippet from Akadaka's Highway to Hell. (laughs) (laughs) Yes,
0: yeah, but you can't talk over Akadaka, right?
1: Absolutely, be disrespectful. (laughs) Um, The the water, the the waves, or the lapping water. I thought was that. Oh yes, yeah. That's, that's terrific. Isn't that beautiful? Oh.
0: So you and I, we're, uh, perhaps we're on a beach. Yep. Um, I, I've never been to Malta. Um, I'm keen to go to Malta. That's become the new obsession. <laughs> maybe, maybe we're on a beach in Malta um, oh, yeah. and we, uh, we're probably not in sort of Tony Abbott kit, um, but we might be. You'd be from the Okanui era.
1: Oh, yes. Great business. Yeah. What happened to him? I don't know I what mean, happened to same, them. I mean, that was the thing. We all had to wear the Okanui's and then we sort of morphed into Billabongs, and then that kind of went off a cliff as well.
0: I, I know. So we're good at that. Maybe we can get to this at the end. Like yeah. Australia, we seem to be good at creating brands and then killing them. Anyway, let's talk about you. Yes. So what do I know? I know that you start. You left. You went to university. Yeah. You started in the finance industry. Right. Uh, then you went over to the UK, yeah. uh, and then 2008 hit. Um, and you found yourself in a sweet spot. That's that is a very short version. You go. You tell us. You give us the the James Aitken story.
1: Sydney Sider grew up two brothers. Um, didn't know what I wanted to do when I went to university. Dad, who you, who you knew, said, "Well, why don't you try economics?" I'd never studied economics or commerce uh, at school, and and it's kind of ironic given what I do now, but. There you go, off to Sydney University, ended up getting a job at Macquarie Bank in foreign exchange, which I loved, and then ended up uh, five years later working for American Bank. They sent me to London in May 1999. Yep. Uh, I was thinking I'd be there for a couple of years working in foreign exchange and explaining to people how the world works and stuff like that. Well, here I am in London 23 years on. It's been a heck of an experience. And, and look, I won't, I won't take listeners through my whole lamentable banking career, but fast-forwarding a bit, I ended up working at a business called AIG Financial Products, uh-huh. and it was a fairly fancy whiz-bang derivatives business uh, that was a subsidiary of what was well, at the time one of the world's largest insurance companies, AIG, American International Group. And uh, I learned three years there all these things about how the world of finance actually works, all these things hidden under the surface yeah. that, that keep the lights on. Uh, And uh, as luck would have it, I mean, it wasn't obvious at the time, but as luck would have it, I left AIG Financial Products in June 2006 with Mm -hmm. all this knowledge. Mm -hmm. And then not long after that, I started working at a Swiss bank UBS in London and uh, they let me loose on their client base and policymakers around the world from September 06 onwards. And uh, look, I was kind of the one-eyed man in the land of the blind because I was telling everyone from, from, from September 06 that, look, Here's what happens if U.S. house prices stop going up. Here's how the financial system works, and by the way, we're heading for a big problem because here's how it's all connected. Yeah. So I just got in. I was speaking to all these people, and 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 look, fast forwarding again, at the end of two thousand eight, all those things I've been warning about started happening, and I had. Over that period, saved a lot of my clients a lot of money, helped them not lose money, which during that period was important, and I'd help some other clients make billions. And then on the back of that, Russell, to my great surprise and and eventual delight, a number of those clients said, look, we can't pay you for all the help you've given us. Have you thought about setting up your own business? And of course, I hadn't. (laughs) Um, But here we are. Nice. And uh, so I got lucky. I knew something really important once, and then I ran with it with the support of some wonderful people yep. uh, around the world, and here I am.
0: Okay, so um, explain to us the business model, your business model.
1: business model is really simple. It's just me, <laughs> and I outsource as much as I can to, to, to other people. But the business model is helping immensely time-constrained people think about investment decisions that must be made. Now maybe that's a bit of a mouthful but think of it this way, you're managing billions of dollars and people look from the outside and they think that you're thinking about risk and investments all day long but of course you're not. In this day and age you might be managing your tens of billions of dollars and if you're lucky you get an hour every day to think and read and, and, and make risk decisions because you've got this compliance training, you've got diversity and inclusion training, yep. you've got all these things yes. that are completely orthogonal yeah. to managing client assets. So there's a niche there for me to come in and I'm working with all sorts of people all around the world, some of the world's largest family offices, uh, sovereign wealth funds, hedge funds, mutual funds, every type of investor you can imagine. But the one common thread is how time-constrained they are mm-hmm. and, how little, and how little time they have to think. And I'm the guy that just sits there for hours and hours and hours like an old man, well, maybe because I am, and I just read and I think and I try to synthesise and impart knowledge to people about how I think the world works. Um, and uh, look, as it, it, the world is shouting at itself right now. Yeah. And that's a problem. Is the world
0: bifurcating?
1: Oh, for sure. Yeah. Yeah, and... It- yeah, go
0: ahead. No, no, no. I, I just think that that's, that <coughs> seems to be what's happening. But it, it certainly in the Australian context, I don't know that we talk about it just as simply as that.
1: Yeah. I, look, Australia has some issues that it will need to confront, but, but perhaps they're not as glaring and pertinent as some of the issues that might be gripping Western Europe right now or the entire Northwest Hemisphere. Yeah. you know, Top of the list might be the, the energy transition, as I think of it, rather than the climate transition. Yeah. Um, but yes, the world's bifurcating. There's a lot of people shouting on the left. There's a lot of people shouting on the right. And and to me, at least, there seems to, whether it be politics or anything, there seems to be this enormous unoccupied space in the middle just to be balanced and proportionate and sensible. And frankly, Russell, that's a challenge. Yep. Because because the essence of so many things today is showbiz and narcissism. You know, look at me, look at me. look. At Kath and Kim, look at me, look at me, yeah. at me right? I love that. And that describes so much of the world today. It's about, hey, look at me, I'm going to make a lot of noise. Well, yeah. I'm not sure that's adding value, but that's the challenge because in finance, which I'm, the field I'm in, mm. so much of finance and investment is about um, jumping up and down and shouting and showbiz. And I'm not sure that's necessarily helpful to, to generating outperformance with a portfolio, but... You know, There's a tension for me, frankly. It's like, what's that? What's the trade-off between being visible and useful, but avoiding all that clamour and noise that, that too many people are caught up in.
0: It sounds glorious. Um, <laughs> you're in. You're in Wimbledon. Yep. So you're in Wimbledon. You're in your library in Wimbledon. Yes. You're, you're a big reader. Yep. Um, and then you think through yeah. r- ramifications, implications. Yeah you sit you then send out communication to that's your right. to your customer base yes um, and they obviously are paying for that communication that's right it's absolutely awesome yeah. tell me i can see i can see the big picture role yeah. that that plays mm-hmm. but do you also play a tactical role
1: oh for sure especially over the past 3 years and and look my clients pay me i mean how lucky are you and I where people pay us to do something we love i mean it doesn't get better than that but my clients Don't pay me to give them, you know, daily trade ideas or do this, do that. They pay me to help them think. Right. But from time to time, and where appropriate and necessary, I do tell them what to do. And obviously, as we think back over the past two years, there's been a lot of disruption in financial markets, and it's the hardest thing to do in the second quarter of 2020, but there are things that you must buy. Right and it's it's you know as i said to my clients back then the best time to buy an airport is when nobody's traveling yes indeed and you know it's those things like that so you're right it's not the rat-a-tat-tat do this today it's more structural thoughtful longer-term thinking and then from time to time if we're patient enough and sensible you pounce on things Uh, and that's been the story of the past three years and then along comes inflation and things change again Uh, indeed
0: so the you're a big reader, obviously, because that's yeah. a big part of who and what you are. Yeah. And a big part of what I'm buying, if I, if I, was, a, if I was fortunate enough to be a customer. <laughs> so just give us a bit of a clue about your reading matter.
1: Oh, it's like, first and most important, it's things that are in the public domain. I mean, one has to be very careful these days about speaking with corporate insiders and so forth. So I exclusively focus on what's in the public domain. But gosh, isn't there a lot of material? Right. And as you know so well and as your clients know, there's an enormous difference between information and knowledge, Mm -hmm. right? Yeah. So, of course, as much as I try to be objective in my reading, it is necessarily subjective because you choose what you're interested in. So I will read academic research. I will read uh, economic research put out by central banks and treasury departments and so forth. I will read a lot of books on the climate transition, history, philosophy and of course a bit of economics because I'm just trying to improve what I know and, and to use that uh, that um, perhaps a cliche from Warren Buffett and, and Charlie Munger is I'm just trying to gently expand year by year my circle of competence so I can be more useful to my clients. Yeah. So right now I could be reading everything from which I am from John Howard's uh, A Sense of Balance which is a great way of framing many of the world's challenges when people are shouting at themselves. I could be reading Vaclav Smil mm-hmm. on climate transition in energy history. Um, I've been down to Craddock's bookshop down here yesterday. I love roaming bookshops. It's a, and it's just, look, I can't give you any definitive topic. I'm just constantly reading on all sorts of matters. Yeah. But especially now I'm reading about experiences from the 1970s. Right. Like, this is
0: where I wanted to go. Yeah. So the notion that what we're about to embark on is we've we've been there before. So when mm. you when you think about the near future, mm-hmm. um it's only on the radio the other day, James I said, is it feeling like the 1970s to you, Ross? We had that conversation. So just yeah. tell me, okay, does it feel like the 1970s to you?
1: It's it's I'd say at some level there's no good historical financial analogues for what the world's trying to transition through at the moment. I mean, there's bits of the early 1980s, there's certainly bits of the 70s. If one wanted to be philosophical, one could say there's elements of the late 1940s. But I think you're right. The thing that resonates in modern memory is elements of the 70s, where you have energy supply shortages, you have price rises, you have nascent wage inflation, and accompanied by what appear to be the wrong policy settings. And we won't know for some months, we may not know for another year, but as much as inflation is perceived to be a political problem today, particularly in the United States, as much as real wages are falling, which I think is an enormous political problem across the West, I think in the next nine months to 12 months, at a guess, these central banks in particular and politicians are going to be forced with a trade-off between growth and inflation. Because, Russell, one of the lessons from the 1970s is that they they eased off rate hikes too soon, particularly in the United States. So they were doing the right thing, tightening policy, and then they thought around 75. you know what, we've got this, yeah. and then off it went again into 1979, 1980. Similar here in Australia, right? It was similar around the West. Yep. Now, the challenge now is, with inflation as high as it is in most countries, but especially the United States, I don't see how you get inflation back on a path toward this kind of mystical 2% number that central banks go on with, which is plucked out of air. But I don't see how you go from 9% to 2% with all these energy supply problems around the world and ongoing supply-side constraints without being prepared to cause some kind of very sharp slowdown in growth, which yep. feels like a recession to a lot of people. So that's the awkward trade-off that lies ahead. So such as our own central bank here, the Reserve Bank, which is probably going to hike interest rates another 50 basis points yep. next month. And, and really what they're trying to do, Russell, is just catch up for their errors of judgment early on. But look, so to come back to your 1970s analogy, it's probably the best fit but what policymakers are trying to do is, is almost unprecedented because we have all this inflation. We have no ability to increase supply, if you will. So what central banks are trying to do is slow down demand. And how to calibrate that when you've got all this leverage yeah. and you've had a property fever in Australia Ooh, again. A lot of
0: money in the lot of yeah. money slotting around.
1: Yes. Right. And and how you calibrate that, I don't think anyone can. Nah. And you can see the nervousness, and to be fair, how could they not be nervous? You can see the nervousness. You know, to use the RBA as example again, when they talk about a narrow path, what they're actually saying is, "Geez, we hope we don't mess this up." I, I right? understand. Yeah, and and to be and and let's be frank, it is a narrow path for the Reserve Bank in particular. Now, the
0: US, am I right? Last time they they actually didn't do point five; they went 0.75. That's correct. So, can you see our reserve? doing something as heavy-handed
1: as that? No, I think, I think look, to, to get three or four in a row 50 basis point hikes in Australia is unprecedented, yeah. really. Yeah. And I think we've got 50 basis points coming and then, oh, maybe another 25, okay. 25, you know, we slow it down a bit. But to be clear, the, the less all these central banks hike in the near term the longer they're going to have to be hiking policy rates well into twenty twenty three.
0: Yeah. Now the winter of discontent. Yeah. UK. What year? Seventy eight. Okay. So, th- talking about you know what's what's about to come before what's about to come in front of us in the near term. Yeah. And of course, relating back to the seventies, um, is the UK about to enter a
1: winter of discontent? There is no comparable. Um, analogue for a developed market being in the mess that the United Kingdom is in right now. There is no analogue. Now, people would say, oh, you know, 78, winter of discontent, Leicester Square in London piled high with garbage, bodies not being buried. I mean, it was just a miserable, miserable time under Callaghan and obviously gave the impetus for for Thatcher. You know, people were so cheesed off. Eventually they said, all right, we'll we'll choose her. But, um, you know, you think about imbalances, you think about Inflation. Inflation in the United Kingdom by the end of this year is probably going to be in the mid teens. Joys. Yeah. And we have some wage rises, but obviously, as is too often the case, the burden of this is going to fall on lower income households. And you have a central bank run by a frankly incompetent man called Andrew Bailey who says, oh, we're going to raise interest rates, but only a little bit. It's like, mate, what are you talking about? You expect this inflation problem to miraculously disappear. So there's a whole lot of things that don't make sense. And then you've got... So first and
0: foremost, you've got to yep. tackle inflation.
1: Of course you do. Right. Um, because, you know, you can risk creating these feedback loops where people say, look, prices are up, I need to be paid more, and then what do you have? Right. And then you have to tighten rates a lot. And, and the United Kingdom is like any Western society that is very leveraged and exposed to property. So if you tighten rates too much, you know that people are going to struggle to service their mortgages and everything else. And what happens to property prices and, the, and round and round it goes. Yes. So on top of that, you have this contest, as we're all seeing to um, be the new Prime Minister, and it's down to two candidates. And the favoured candidate, this lady, Liz trust, uh, trust I should say, I don't trust her but her name <laughs> is trust. she's saying the way to address the economic imbalances in the United Kingdom Russell incredibly is we're going to embark on tax cuts to stimulate demand to and put I'm like, more money Yeah. In the, um, okay yeah that's an unusual way of tackling inflation
0: if in, if inflation is number 1 on the on yeah. the things to be tackled yeah. then why would you do tax cuts well that's exactly it so how does she why so okay let's assume that she's good smart mm. competent mm. why does she think that's a good thing
1: to do she's trying to be elected prime minister okay right? so it's
0: got actually it's not uh, it's about the immediate term not the medium to long term
1: and then on top of that they're also speaking with uk energy providers talking about locking in or capping uh, energy prices for the next 2 years well i would have thought that subsidizing demand in any way shape or form when you've got an inflation problem um, is not the way to tackle inflation. I've got it. It's to, inc- it's to sustain the problem. And the same applies in the United States whilst I think about it. You may have seen last night that Biden has announced that they're going to forgive $10,000 of student loans for some um, uh, uh, graduates and they're also going to forgive up to $20,000 of what's called Pell Grants. Now, if you add this all up, that's effectively a half a trillion dollar stimulus stimulus to people that have student loans in the United States. And again, that's an interesting way to deal with an inflation problem. So really what I'm thinking about here is you've got this disconnect, right? You've got this disconnect where the politicians everywhere, and especially central banks, say inflation is a problem that we must address and bring down because there's got a cost of living crisis, particularly in the UK. But at the same time, politics is skewed to all these policies that would either forgive debt... Yeah. Or underpin wages and generally make prices stay high, yeah. and and frankly, very close to the top of that list is these policies we're adopting as part of the climate transition.
0: Okay, one of which might be uh, related to. I imagine it is. Um, I think I'm right when I say the UK has closed all of its gas storage. Yeah. Okay, so that that's interesting. Obviously, given what's happening in the Ukraine, given Mm. that Russia's got it over people when it comes to energy, Mm. um, given that uh, we're coming into winter, Mm. I'm thinking, hang on, this could well be worse than the winter of discontent from 1978.
1: I'd say that's highly likely. I think people are... Look, I'm, I'm a dual citizen these days, but Brits are inclined to not complain. Mustn't grumble, stiff upper lip and all that, right? Yeah. yeah. But you can see how cheesed off people are. Right. They're really cheesed off. There's all these campaigns in the UK right now to not pay energy bills. Now, obviously, there's a risk about one's credit ratings, but the the discontent is welling up, and you can see it. And it will require very strong political leadership to address it, and I'm not sure we have any of that. Okay. But look, um, yeah, unfortunately, in 2017, uh, do-gooding virtue-signalling Conservative Party politicians said, we're going to close down this massive gas cavern storage facility under the North Sea called rough, literally rough. Yeah. Oh, dear, because we've got uh, continuous gas supplies, we've got these what's called interconnectors with Norway and, and the continent Rotterdam to import gas. Well, OK, how does that work when Europe itself is struggling with its gas supplies... And uh, to, to power itself through this winter, the UK is going to be relying post-Brexit on the kindness of strangers. And uh, I'm not sure that's going to work terribly well. Okay. So, I'm look, I'm budgeting our energy bills for our home in Wimbledon have tripled, and I'm budgeting that they're going to quadruple between oh, now and the end of the year. Bloody hell. And we're okay. We can manage that. Yep. But for low-income households, this is an absolute catastrophe. <coughs> so, 2017... Mm.
0: Let's call that, you know, I, I'm just inventing this, peak globalisation. Oh, yeah. Yeah? Yeah. So, so the notion of globalisation is diminishing. Yes. And so COVID presumably played a role. Yeah. Um, but what else?
1: I, I think of it as kind of globalization because it's not that we're ripping out supply chains and factories from, <gasps> from, from countries we don't like, and we'll, of course, talk about one country in a minute, but it's like... If we're a global manufacturer, right now, we're not going to be adding capacity in China. We're much more likely to build that next manufacturing plant in a friendlier country. Because, Russell, the thing we all learned – well, we learned many things during COVID – but one of the things that we learned is how over-optimized the world had become as a result of globalisation. Well, of course it has. Globalisation equals profit maximisation – and most of all, just in time. Yes. Everything, optimization, globalization, just in time. And Covus taught us that actually what matters is just in case. <laughs> right? Yeah, well done. Yeah. And just in case is what the world is refocusing on. How is it that we rely on very lengthy, complicated supply chains to provide us with all the things we need, whether it be PPE or whatever? Yeah. How come China controls 75% of the world's solar panels? Oh, you mean the things we're going to stick on all our roofs? Okay, great. But how do they make them? Oh, they use coal. You know, whatever. (laughs) So there's a few few things that are changing here. But again, it goes back to the, the overarching thesis. It's very difficult to calibrate by the basis point or the decimal point or whatever. But you think to yourself, if we're going to pivot to a world that's... Not just in time and over-optimized, but has some slack in it, and is more just in case. It's going to be more expensive, which probably means that you know inflation's not going away. But what's interesting about that, I think,
0: mm-hmm. yeah, I, you, I, you're no doubt right that things will be more expensive. Mm. But maybe what
1: I'll do is I'll buy less of it. Well, it's, it's demand destruction at a particular price. You're seeing some sense of that with gasoline in the United States. And, and you'd imagine that as we move through what will be a very tricky northwestern winter, that there will be industry that will be looking to turn itself off for a time. Households will be having cold showers, and heaven forbid, you mightn't be able to charge your electric vehicle every night. Yeah. Um, so that's demand destruction. But yes, you're also talking about demand destruction and demand substitution. Right. Maybe we would prefer to buy some things that are homegrown or home manufactured rather than saying, oh, why am I selling all these raw materials to foreign powers and then buying it back as finished goods? You know, might it be more economical to try to produce some of these things domestically again? And that's interesting to watch and you'd imagine that would be a bit of a vote winner. But again, it's, it's expensive to do because you can't, when you've been focused on globalisation for decades, which we have, aided and abetted by disinflation and tax incentives, um, you can't just reconstruct that all in about five minutes. Right. It's it's a multi-year process. But if, if the United States and allied countries talk about this concept of friend-shoring, which is a bit of a, a geeky term, but it's what's happening, it's like, you know what, we should rebalance towards friendly nations that trust each other in case the world goes a bit pear-shaped. Right. And, of course, in brackets, it's like, oh, dear, we're all over-reliant on China. Yeah. yeah. Right? Uh, which is the critical point they're all
0: making. Okay. And so friend-shoring, uh, yeah. that's interesting. So, well, I suppose in the, in the Australian context, we've got the quad, which is not really yeah. – is that about ec- ec- economics or that's more uh. just you know making sure we've got friends in the right places?
1: Well, it's, it's a bit of both, yep. but I think at, at the risk of being a bit cheeky, Russell, it's to try and incentivise India to come up with a coherent geopolitical strategy. Right. right? If we yep. bring them in, which is no bad thing, if we bring them in with Japan and the United States and ourselves, and, and to some extent Indonesia, which is a very important country, mm. um, then perhaps India can, can play the game and be a trusted global partner. And, and, you know, under Modi, the odds are reasonably high that it might. But it's not obvious that Indonesia has a strategy. So by joining the Quad uh, – India, I should say. Yep. Um, but by joining the Quad, I think it's no bad thing, but it may take some time to see how it plays out because India fairly wants to keep its option open. Do you think
0: Australia – broad, broad yeah.
1: too – do you think Australia realises how rich it is? No, I don't. I think there's too much squabbling over things that don't matter. Um, you know, that's the way it works. That's the way the media game is, is played, as, as you know well. And, you know, it seems to me when I read the Australian press that too much of it is, is one long infomercial, right? It's a giant infomercial. It's not journalism and critical questions. It's yeah. like, here's, here's the 5.30pm here's the media drop. Here's, here's basically how the Fin... Re- I shouldn't say Fin Review. I'm not being nasty. I'm just using it as an example. Here's how the Fin Review is going to appear tomorrow. Go. Okay... And as ever, there's this tension in journalism. How do you critique the hand that feeds you? Mm. Yeah. Right? Yeah. It's tricky one. So it's not tricky. Ha- I'm not having a go journalist. I'm just saying it's difficult to get to the bottom of some of these critical issues. But to your point, I don't think Australia realises how well positioned it is. Yeah. And it's well positioned because we have a lot of wind, we have a lot of sun, mm-hmm. and we have a lot of money. And for those of us growing up in, or working in finance for 25, 30 years, you, you're taught that Japan is one of the world's largest creditor nations. It has a gigantic pool of savings. True. So we're taught to think a lot about Japanese capital flows into various assets around the world. Well, give it another two years. And Australia, thanks to the magic of superannuation, will be the largest creditor nation in Asia, Asia. There we go. Overtaking Japan. And I'm like... A- what are we doing with What are with we doing deal? with all that money? Now, you and I know, and it's good to see conversations around it even this week, you and I know that all our friends in the superannuation industry are very keen to invest in the energy transition. Good. And, that, and we've seen this climate bill go through Canberra, and look, look, we could nitpick over whether 43% is a bit ambitious yeah. over eight years. Yeah, like, but to 2030... Yeah, but we're going to have a red-hot go at it. We've got the money. Yeah, we've got the money we're going to have a red-hot go at it. <laughs> so the thing is that I don't doubt that any number of renewable projects in Australia can get funded, but the global clout in parallel with that, the global clout that Australia has as, our re- as a result of our compulsory superannuation is enormous. And I'm not sure we appreciate how important that could be geo-strategically for us over a long period of time. Now, look, we've got some issues we need to resolve or be mindful of with our friends in Beijing. Yeah, That's not going to change. In mm. fact, it's probably going to get more difficult. Mm. But the amount of capital that Australian super funds can provide to help build out UK infrastructure...
0: Correct, yeah. Right? Yeah. What about Indonesian infrastructure? Absolutely. What about
1: India? 100%. Right. And, and I'm pleased to see that we're starting to tilt in that direction. Uh, to see Greg Combe up in Indonesia, I think it's this week or next, with various Aussie superfunds following up on Albanese's very successful trip to to see Jakawi, that's a no-brainer. And, you know, we have our ups and downs with, with Jakarta, but our... We have such a deep structural, technical, bureaucratic relationship with Indonesia that, again, I think is underreported and, and generally under acknowledged in Australia. And it's wonderful to see. And if we can now provide the capital and expertise to help our really important northern neighbour, that is a phenomenal thing. We do a lot of things well.
0: We do. So just take, I, I sometimes get completely carried away and I say, actually, Australia's a
1: gift to the world. We could be. It would take... Yeah, I, I wouldn't go quite that far, but I would say that we can be enormously helpful to our allies. Right. Enormously helpful. And whether that be our UK friends, our Western European friends, our Indian friends, our Indonesian friends, there's no doubt about it. Um, and by the way, I shouldn't say that Aussie super funds, to anyone listening who's invested in an Aussie super fund, they're not just going to be throwing money at Indonesian speculative assets or anything like that it's going to be done in a structured and sensible way same goes with the energy transition Uh, the assets need to be packaged they need to be analyzed and that that will come Um, but yeah I, I think we can be enormous force for good on the global stage and for a long long time we have punched well above our weight and that is the result of, and we have been able to do that when we are at our bipartisan best. A lot, like and it. that's the thing that people overlook. When yeah. when Australia is at its bipartisan best, yeah, there's no stopping us.
0: Now, um, Ukraine. Yeah, uh, I was wondering this morning: mm. is there a thing called um, the Ukraine Investment Fund?
1: <laughs> I'm not sure. Is that a good idea? Well. It depends what the end game is. Yeah. Now, we don't doubt that there's any amount of goodwill extended towards Zelensky in Kiev right now. Although, remarkably, what kind of world are we in when Zelensky and his wife have been photographed by Annie Leibovitz for Vogue? I mean, it's almost like wagging the dog. Remember that movie a few I years do. I mean, 20 years it ago. It may
0: well be someone wagging the dog. And I'm
1: like, this makes no sense to me no. because you're supposed to be at war. You're not supposed to be a celebrity. But then again such as the day and age we're in, yep. where Kiev seems to have completely outspun Moscow. But, but anyway, to answer your question, of course people want to land one on the nose of Putin, but you're not going to put a billion into downtown Kiev or whatever, mm. or to key, uh, Ukrainian agriculture, unless you're very confident of the outcome. And on that, if Putin, as is constantly reported in the West, is losing... How come we're still fighting? <laughs> well, because he hasn't lost. Right. Right. And if we were him, we'd be holding out for the northern winter Oh yeah, to make it as painful as possible
0: yep. for northwestern Europe. Okay, so um, I've written down on my little pad here, Germany.
1: Yeah. It's extraordinary bad policy that Germany's now paying the price for. I mean... It, to do away with nuclear in a mad panic in 2011, and by the way, I've never understood why so many people think Merkel was this great leader. I thought she was a total disaster in in so many directions, an absolute disaster, whose great school was surviving. Yes. And other than that, I don't think she achieved anything. She did that well. Yep. <laughs> but um, maybe that's the game. But, but look, to, to shut off nuclear and then talk about this economic miracle, export miracle, which in a supply chain sense, runs through China. Yep. In an energy sense, is 100% Russia. Well, here we go. Um, big
0: and, problem. And Russia and China, of course, have signed yeah, yeah. A, a memorandum, which is uh, unlimited.
1: Well, I think of it as the unlimited bromance between two nasty people. I mean, I yeah. watch out, there's a name-dropping alert coming here, but I remember listening to Dr Henry Kissinger, uh, speaking at a small client offsite a few years back and you know, he was quite tight with Putin at the time and I won't try and do Dr Kissinger's faux-German accent but he said, oh, you know, Putin is the supreme strategist in the world today but you wouldn't want him as your father-in-law. And I, I think that's dead right. Um, but, you know, when you think of Germany, it's just been completely outfoxed. Yeah. right by a man who, perhaps as a result of his economic and political system, has a long-term view.
0: So Ukraine is significant when it comes to resource. Sure. Resources. Yeah. So presumably it's um it's a signature, unlimited, in terms of our relationship, China-Russia mm. relationship, and we'll just go and get Ukraine, and then we don't need any of the other donkeys. Is that, was it as simple as
1: that? I'm not... Maybe it is, I'm not sure, but really to go back to, to Germany as this perceived engine of global growth and this economic miracle ongoing, they're stockpiling energy like mad. And then the next step is to um, to ration energy. And that goes back to your question about the 1970s. It's been a long time since the West has had to make energy sacrifices. But that's going to have to happen through this northern winter. And, and look, at one level, if... If Biden's endless, woke climate policy can get out of its own way... Yeah. ...the United States could supply Western Europe with endless amounts of gas at a reasonable price. Yeah. But for obvious reasons, in this day and age of endless climate narrative, oh, no, 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 you can't dig a new hole, you can't increase shale supply, dot, dot, dot. So there's a bit of a political problem there. Yeah. So the world, collectively could solve Germany and Western Europe's gas problem if it were allowed.
0: So, America. I love America. We both do. Yeah, just a glorious place. Yes. It's too long since I've been there. Mm. Um, There's a lot of pressure for people to fall out of love with America.
1: Yeah. Now, is that fair? It's difficult to love it right now, isn't it? And it's such a shame because what we get is the reported, you know, the fights. Yeah. It's, it seems like just a, America is having a giant fight with itself all day, every day, aided and abetted by certain platforms. Yeah. And, look, I'm not going to condone Trump for a second. I never will. But he's consistent. <laughs> he never changes, right? He's like Boris Johnson. People think he'll change. He never's going to change. No, that's right. He's Trump. Yeah. And, but if I was... I would think the worst way to deal with Mr. Trump would be to make a martyr of him. And that's the risk now. Mm. Now, I hope that when all this stuff is unsealed that they had very, very, very good grounds for sending in the FBI to Mar-a-Lago. Yeah. I hope. Because if they didn't, no. and it was designed as some political hit, to try and knock Trump out of 2024 race, mm. um, then we've got a big problem because that will serve to reinforce Trump as a candidate again. The big ideas
0: that come out of America that have you know, been a major driver of you know, the last 150 years really. Right. So shooting for Mars, for example. Right. I mean, I look at that as great. Yeah. And that that will benefit everyone.
1: Yes. Am I, am I an idealist? No, I think that's right. I think if these people have so much money, and let's, let's face it, the musts of this world have that much money and the bezoses that they're going to throw billions at building a reusable rocket, yeah. go for it. Yeah. I mean, who knows? I mean, colonising Mars, we'll see. Yeah. But who knows what might come out of that? And quite frankly, as much as people sometimes tend to, to rubbish it on you know, these indulgent billionaires, to come up with the technology... In a matter of years, to land a rocket on a platform oh, yeah. is mind-blowing. Totally agree. It's phenomenal.
0: Do you know, he, he loved his Isaac Asimov yeah. as a kid, yeah. which I just love that,
1: right? Yeah, and, um, and there you have it. Yeah. And he is bonkers, but then most geniuses are bonkers. And you know, just to think about it in practical terms, people say to me, well, do you invest in Tesla? And I say, well, no. I think it's an amazing company, but I, I don't want to ride that Bronco. I, I don't know what he's going to do next, yeah. right? I mean, there's simpler things to do with one savings. But, <laughs> but you know what? If, if Bezos and other people like that and others we're not reading about want to look in reusable rockets, great. Yep. Other people out there are quietly doing amazing things with defence technology. They just don't like to talk about it too much. Yep. But there's all sorts of stuff happening there because we know we might need to outfox the people in those <laughs> So right. for,
0: fourth industrial revolution. Yeah. yeah. So we talk about what... So, so the world is going to move into energy transition, yeah. uh, the, sharing, the sharing economy, the digitisation of everything. Just give us your, your view. Because a lot of talk and a lot of reading around all that
1: yeah, and you know, then on top of that, there's the crypto revolution and blockchain, this, that, and the other. And I'm, I'll just say, I'm very skeptical about all of that. But you know what? We're in the day age where money is still largely free, so people are going to throw it at all sorts of things. So good on them, and, and speculation is here. And anyway, but you know, actually, while I remember it, you know, people talk. There's a lot of people out there right now in finance and investing talking about the democratization of finance. So we're going to allow the retail investor to participate. What the big boys participate in all these gambling websites and yes. trading websites and stuff like that—it's not the democratization of finance; it's the democratization of gambling and leverage. Right. And I can't see how that's a good thing. Anyway, you were not asking me that question. <laughs> I just wanted to get it off my chest. Hey, well done.
0: <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Uh, Thanks for having me. So uh, is this the—is this the—is uh, it DOAs or the dispersed organizations? Is that what all that is? I don't know. I've never oh. heard that. Term. Oh, sounds okay. a, sounds pretty cool. Some, though. Yeah, I know some but, sort but, of cool digital but look, thing. We're,
1: <laughs> we're trying to, you know, digitization of many things, yes. In other words, we're collecting more and more data. Yes, we yeah. all know that. We're yeah. using the cloud more and more. Yes, it's been brilliant for a whole lot of things, not least of which is medicine. Mm. And I think the, the, the advances we're making there are, are fantastic. You know, another underreported story about some of the things that are going right out there in the world. And, and that's, that's, so that's not going to change. That's a structural trend. We're going to see more and more of that. Uh, we're going to see... You know our data being used in more and creative ways, and, and subject to us all getting comfortable. Uh, one can only imagine how little time we're going to be spending in the future visiting our GP or doctor, rather than talking to them or saying, "Can you just scan your face, Russell? Or oh, you've got a bit of a bump there, mate? Might want to get that looked at, or you know, stuff like that." Yeah. Um. So that's that's a given. But look, I, I, it's tricky when there's so much marketing and branding. To, to differentiate between the endless infomercial about how software's eating the world, yeah. right and how all these platforms are eventually going to dominate, even though they don't make any money mm. um, to differentiate between that and what's actually useful. So you,
0: we, when you and I first met, yep. um, we did discuss that social media it has it will destroy democracy.
1: Well I think it is. Um, but you think about you go back to incentives, okay? And if you and I were wanting to get as many eyeballs as possible onto our platform, well, we would want to be as controversial as possible. Yeah. We would actually want to polarise people. Yeah. We would want to fire people up and they've succeeded beyond their wildest dreams. And if we can do that and we get all the eyeballs, we can probably find a way to monetize it, whether it be advertising or something else. And here we are. And you think about the fiendishly clever way all these social media apps work. It's like you scroll down the screen, you drag your finger down the screen, refresh, refresh, refresh. We're all looking for likes, retweets, who's reading my stuff? It's brilliant. Because it's the same reflex, it's almost the same hand reflex and dopamine reflex Mm -hmm. as playing a slot machine. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I'm in Vegas. Ching, ching. Oh, I got two lemons. I'll keep playing until I get three lemons in a row. (laughs) Right? It's the same psychology. So we're endlessly scrolling and looking for self-validation because we've said something so insightful. And it's tricky not to get roped into that or doped into that because it is dopamine. So what do we do all day? People are like, oh, you know, we're all busy, we're all scrolling down our screens and we're all just catching sound bites yeah. and, and 140 or now 280 characters synopses of these really challenging global yeah, issues. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. So what are we breeding?
0: Yeah, I saw it on Twitter.
1: We're breeding <laughs> monocultures... Mm -hmm. of groupthink.
0: No question of that.
1: Which is endlessly divisive. Mm. And I think that unless you're prepared to join the throng on the right or the throng on the left, you're kind of afraid to put your head above the parapet and say, well, I'm not sure I agree with it." Oh, you're one of them. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. Right? Oh, I think the climate transition is going to be... Oh, so you're a Trump supporter, eh? I think ESG is problematic. ESG investing, I think there's... Too much virtue. Oh, oh, that's a trigger event, <laughs> right? You know, it, it's endless. Yes, but I sense there's an awful lot of people here in Australia, sensible people, who are sick to death of being told how to think, what to say, what to wear. They've been constantly berated for just trying to get on with their lives, and I think that's awful. Yeah, and and I'm not sure, you know. This it, might this might if life yeah. is going to become more difficult
0: yeah then that might change right because it's probably a result of wealth
1: yeah it's a result wealth. of well you think about the the uh, philosophically right over the past 30 40 years it's been all tilted towards the accumulation of capital yes we've had disinflation which is great for creditors yeah. let's lever up anything combined with, Tax incentives, I mean, here in Australia, negative gearing, Indeed. right? Yeah. Who's not to love another investment apartment? Yeah. And in the United States, the deductibility of interest on debt, mm. which incentivizes all these private equity guys to lever up as much as they can and have a thin slice of equity. So when things go wrong, they all go, you know. So we've had decades in line with globalisation, which everything's been skewed to capital and the accumulation of capital and we've flipped a switch over the past couple of years where we've created all this inflation the political conversation has changed and we're very rapidly turning the the dial away from capital towards labor and workers and they're going to they've got a sniff workers have got a sniff in very tight employment markets yep. you know how many help wanted signs do you see around melbourne i'm sure all our listeners can just observe it or your listeners on, on the morning show. You yeah. know, They can see it and feel it. And, and as I said earlier, inflation is when everyone's talking about inflation. It's not some kind of calibration. It's not even a number. It's a mindset. So the workers are feeling for the first time in decades, and who can blame them, that they may have some bargaining power. Yes. And this is I, – I worry a bit that this is the flip side – Of or the inverse of what one of the great figures in Australian economic history did, and that's Bill Kelty, right? And we all talk about Hawke and Keating, but the man who was so important to doing that transition away from the high inflation and, you know, um, overly regulated 1970s Australia to the Hawke-Keating revolution, Bill Kelty... Yeah, the Accord, right? Yes. And it was about Hawke and Keating saying, Bill... We need you to keep your blokes and your guys and girls under control. So wage rises, yes, but we need to manage it. He's like, leave it with me. Brilliant. I think we've now got a lot of people agitating for the opposite. And to be fair, who can blame them? It's like real wages are falling. It's not as bad as it is in the UK here in Australia, but we're on the cusp of a cost of living crisis, particularly for the lower income households, and that's going to be politically poisonous. Mm. So you can sense that, you know, the unions are like, look, you know, we want our slice of the pie. Now, how you calibrate that on the way up, I'm not sure, but I don't see too many Bill Kelties out there who are prepared to say, look, here's how we manage it, here's how we discuss it, here's how we negotiate it, rather than this endless clamour and shouting. Yeah. Because the last thing you want in Australia is commodity prices to collapse combined with sharply higher interest rates. Now, that would be a bad day for the Australian economy or a bad few years. So if you work backwards from that and invert it, you say to yourself, what do we need to do now to avoid this dreaded wage price spiral in Australia? And to be very clear, we're not there. We're not there because if we get that, the Reserve Bank will have to say, look, ladies and gentlemen, I'm really sorry, but we're going to have to jam up rates here. Mm. With obvious consequences from Australia's most loved asset, which is property. Indeed. So we want to avoid that. Now,
0: speaking of property, I want to take
1: I want to take you to Wimbledon. Yes.
0: Um. And we have got to go. You know, is there, there's not really a seaside, but there's a river at Wimbledon. So potentially we're at. You know, yeah. we're on the Thames.
1: Yes, it's frozen over. Yes, so we're <laughs> so we're, we're ice skating. Yes,
0: Wimbledon is. Glorious! I, I London to me is a glorious place. Wimbledon, beautiful. Yep. Just, I want you to just, just give me a bit of romance of where you live.
1: We are about two hundred yards behind Centre Court. Uh, from my office, I'm very fortunate. I look over Centre Court and the tennis courts in Wimbledon. Over behind Centre Court, I can see the roof of the Royal Albert Hall, and I can see all the way across London past Battersea Power Station. London Eye, Big Ben and everything. And then I go across the city and the Shard and I can see all the way around to Canary Wharf. Wow. Yeah. From Wimbledon? Yeah. We've got a nice... You're quite high. (laughs) We've got a nice corner block and I'm very lucky to uh, sit there in my turret with my binoculars perfect. No, sorry, looking out on the world. Um, But it's a lovely spot and we get this great buzz every year when the tennis is on. I mean, we, we hear the sound come in our windows five seconds before it's on the TV and you, you always know when the great Federer's won a point because the noise is so big and it comes rolling up the hill and it's just a magical spot. And, but never did I imagine when I landed in London 23 years ago that, well, firstly, I'd still be there, um, that I'd be living in Wimbledon, running my own business. I mean, you, ca- you can't make it up. You couldn't make it up. But it's a great spot. We've got great neighbours, great location... 30 minutes easy commute into, you know, West End of London, whatever. And the trains actually work pretty well no matter what people say and yes. it's a good spot. It's a great spot.
0: Or well, James, sincere congratulations on you, on the business that you've built, Thanks. the life that you've created, yeah. and I know that a, there's a fellow up there called John Yeah. would be very, very proud of you. Well, good I'm man.
1: Very touched indeed and what a great chap, mate. Thank you.